Our reading this morning is taken from 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, and reading verses 1 to 12. Hear the word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Amen. We're going to sing the Saviour died but rose again from from Romans 8.
Colin, I have this working now if you want to put it here. Let me, let me pray before we continue. Father, we have sung those words from the letter to the Romans, that great paraphrase of faith, and we have heard read Your glorious Word. And we pray now in these moments as we meditate on it and consider its meaning that You would encourage us, that You would give us Your Holy Spirit, that You would allow Your Word to transform our thinking and our minds and our lives that we may live for You. Amen. This is a, a season of the, Christ, of the Christian year where we are particularly focused on the victories of the Lord Jesus. We are in the season of Easter, but we are moving um, next week. Sunday is Ascension Sunday, where we remember that Jesus ascended to the Father's right-hand side and rules over the whole earth. And then the following Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, where we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, these are wonderful times to worship. And I thought over the next few weeks, we might look at parts of the first letter of Peter. And we read the first 12 verses of that this morning. I would encourage you just to, to read Peter's letter. It'll only take you about 10 minutes, um, but to, to have your Bibles and, and to read it um, um, in, in the week ahead. The letter is addressed to the Christians who are in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And for those of you who are not familiar with ancient Greco-Roman geography, we'll call it Turkey. This is the area that Peter is writing to, and it shows just how in those early decades the church was growing. It wasn't just Christians that were living in Jerusalem and and Samaria, but really the gospel was beginning to reach to the ends of the earth. And in the Roman cities, the Greco-Roman cities of that area, there were little churches that had been planted. Some of them might only have been a few people meeting in a house, but there they were. And the letter is written in a difficult time. Words that come to us where Peter says that you suffer griefs in all kinds of trials. You suffer griefs in all kinds of trials. We know from the letter that these were Christians who were being insulted. They were being Christians who were sometimes running into trouble with the authorities. They were Christians who were sometimes having to work through difficult relationships, some with powerful people. Some of the Christians were slaves. Some of the Christians, many of the Christians may well have been um, married to people who, who didn't believe, and many of them would have been women in that situation where usually the husband told them what they should believe and were struggling to work out what that meant in those situations. Actually, we don't really know all the details. Grief in all kinds of trials really, as Peter saying, you're going through an awful lot, folks. And we might put into that as we read this letter, whatever it is that we are going through, whatever it is that's been difficult for us in our days, in our lives, in our families. And it's described in verse 7 as being like a fire that they're going through. I want to think about that metaphor for a moment of a fire. What happens to substances that are put into a fire? Some burn up, don't they? You put some paper in or uh, uh, some chemicals or whatever, they'll explode, they'll burn up, they'll be consumed. Others simply melt. 
They lose all their form, all their rigidity. They simply melt into whatever is around them, whatever shape is about them. But others, and this is the metaphor that Peter will use here, are refined. That is, all the impurities are, are moved away and the, the metal gets stronger or the gold comes out of the ore or whatever else it is. So a fire can have different results depending on what it is that goes through them. I was thinking about eggs in that regard, just talking about eggs later on, about what happens when you put eggs into heat. And um, well, anyone that's had to scrape the bottom of a pot that's had burnt scrambled egg in it will know that it's not always pleasant, is it? Sometimes the heat just kills it. Or we can think of the fact that um, if it's a chocolate egg, <laughs> it's just going to go... And I, I wonder how many folk will have taken, the kids might have taken that egg, and some of them have eaten them, but some might put them in their pocket. Parents better watch out for that one later. It could be a sticky mess. So again, there's the, the burning, then there's the melting, but then there's the hard boiling. The reason we were able to roll eggs down a hill was because heat had changed them into something that was tougher. And I guess one of the things that Peter is aware of as he writes this letter is something that any pastor writing to a congregation would be aware of, is that folk go through suffering and trials, and it can do different things to faith. Sometimes it can destroy faith. And we've all come across people who used to come to church, used to believe, and then they went through suffering and thought, well, if that's what God's like, then the deal's off. I, I can't cope with this anymore. And their faith has collapsed in the face of suffering. And there's other times where what suffering does uh, and difficulties do is they encourage us to melt, literally to melt. That is, our lives end up being reshaped in a more comfortable way. We become like everything else around us. Once we had a distinctiveness, a, a, a real fervor for our faith, um, now we might still come to church, we might still be involved in things, maybe, but actually our lives pretty much reflect everything around us. Same values, same activities, the same things exciting. But then thirdly, there are folk who have gone through suffering and it seems to have done something remarkable to them. You know, when I, th when I think of some of the Christian saints that I have met, real people whose lives have just shone, you know the type of person I'm meaning, you'll have met them, whose lives have really shone for Jesus in ways that have real integrity. How often do those people have a story of real suffering? Sometimes shocking suffering, and not a suffering that they want to wear on their sleeve and tell you about all the time, but you start to ask them questions, and they have been through it, folks. And so we have this, this fire of suffering, and it can do different things to us. Now, our world today spends an awful lot of time trying to avoid suffering, healthcare plans, different ways of, of, of trying to avoid escapism to get away from our worries and our troubles. But here's one of the truths of life, if you haven't worked out already, and I suspect most of you can, you can't avoid it, can you? It's going to come and bite you, whatever it is, all times. And, and sometimes we, we speak a language where we're, we're, we're trying to deny it, we're trying to minimize it, it'll be all right. Well, sometimes it won't. I've had folks say to me, you know, things can only get better. Well, how do you know that? The only thing that we can begin to ask is, 
How are we the type of people who are not destroyed by suffering? How are we the type of people who are not melted by suffering? But how are we the type of people that grow and are stronger and begin to shine like gold, like those saints that we can speak of? Now, the context of this letter is that Peter is writing, he says all these different people in all these different places, but it's interesting how he describes them. He describes them as exiles scattered through the provinces. The, the words literally say refugees in the diaspora in Greek. Now, that word diaspora is actually Jewish technical language. You see, what happened in the Old Testament, when Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Jerusalem, he carried the people off into exile in Babylon. They were living in a strange land. And if you read through the rest of the, of the Old Testament, you'll find that 70 years later, many of them came back and reestablished their lives back in the Holy Land. But many of them didn't. That's why you get the books of Esther and Daniel of people living in these strange places. And that became the story of the Jews for the next 500 years. In fact, for the next 2,500 years, that many of them did not live in the Holy Land. They still don't today. They lived in what they called the diaspora, spread out, living as exiles at that time in all the cities of the Greek and the Roman worlds. And they were living in these places. Now, there were always two dangers for Jews as a, as a religious minority living in those two places. One was that they might be persecuted, that they might be discriminated against, that they might be treated pretty badly. And sometimes, if you know the history of, of Judaism, they definitely were. And we know that even in our own centuries, our own decades. But the other danger was that they would just melt away that they would take on the values and the language and the culture and the religions of the people around them until, well, there was nothing left. Now, Peter isn't writing principally to Jews. He's actually writing to Christians. He's writing to Gentile Christians. And these Gentile Christians aren't living in different places. They're living in the places that they're native to, the places they've I been. But he describes them as being like exiles, like being diasporas. And what he's saying to them is, what has happened to you when you became Christians has so changed your identity. It's so changed who you were that it's almost as if you were like these Jewish people scattered in different places where the values and the culture are alien to what we believe as believers in Jesus. And if we go on with this letter, Peter will say, because you've come to Jesus, you were given a new birth. You've got a new citizenship. You've got a new identity in Jesus. You are fundamentally different, and therefore we think differently. We live differently. We have a different purpose as we exist in the world. You know, sometimes at uh, the church today we say, "Oh, there's very few." I, I, I'm in a, an office, and I'm in a school, and I'm, I, I'm in I, I'm in a family where there's very few people that believe. Maybe I'm the only one. And we think that's really difficult, and there's a danger that we, might, that we might get destroyed in that. But here's the amazing thing. That's been God's mission strategy from the beginning, was that the believers would go from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, and they would start little communities. They would be little people. They would be the salt that would begin to change the world around them until it became Christian. Verse 2, Peter says here, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He has given His Holy Spirit to transform you. He has given His Son's blood to save you. 
Now, this is stuff we all know. We know, we know the gospel story. We know that we are chosen by God. We, we know that we have received the Holy Spirit as Christians. We know that, that Jesus died for us on the cross. But sometimes we need to stop and allow it to blow our minds. God created the whole universe put the stars into space, invented the laws of physics, and as He was doing that, He chose you. From the beginning of time, He chose you to transform you. And Peter will go on to say, to send His Son to die on a cross and to rise again, that you might know the hope and certainty of God's power and purpose for you. This letter is Peter as a pastor saying to a community, I can't change the situation you find yourselves in. I can't make it easier. I can't take away the pain or the suffering, but what I can do is remind you of the hope that you are baptized into in Jesus. The hope, the same hope that Paul had when Paul was shipwrecked and flogged and imprisoned and thrown in a prison cell, and it left him singing, I rejoice in the Lord always, even in that dark place. Because if we don't have that hope, if we don't know that hope, if we don't remind ourselves of that hope, then we will burn up when suffering comes, or we will just melt until we lose our missional distinctiveness. You know, I, I, when I was working in, in schools years ago now, we, we had a book that we sometimes gave secondary school pupils that were Christians, that, that were part of the church, and they were going into secondary schools, and increasingly as they went to secondary school, they would find themselves in difficult situations. They would find themselves in, in classes where nobody believed, nobody went to church, everyone thought you were crazy. Sometimes the teachers gave them a hard time as well. And the book that we gave them was called The Chocolate Teapot. How to shape a world around us rather than be shaped by. And the whole point was that a chocolate teapot is actually pretty useless, isn't it? Because it just goes... <laughs> Might look nice. You ask kids what, what type of egg they want, they want chocolate eggs. But chocolate has its limitations. The pressure, the heat will end up with the chocolate being shaped by that which is round it instead of being transforming that which is round it. And so easy for us to take on the values, the hopelessness, the materialism, the cynicism of the world that's around us, rather than remember that we have a Christian faith that makes it entirely different. Paul puts it this way in Romans. He says, do not conform to the pattern, the mold of the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, this is very important for us as a church in these times. Without going through all the contentious issues that we, we find ourselves in and what the rights and the wrongs is, here is a very simple principle that what we mustn't do is simply say, oh, well, What's the world around us thinking? That's what we must think. But rather, whatever the issue is, whatever the, 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 the questions are, and they're new in every generation, we need to be a people who go back in prayer to the Bible, 
back in prayer to the Lord Jesus and say, what is it that our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, He who came from the Father who made the world, what is it that our belief in Him who died for us and rose again in the new world that is to come, how does that inform our thinking about whatever this contentious issue is? That needs to be the principles. We will not be chocolate teapots. Yes, every age will have new questions, and yes, we will have to work those things out, but we are going to be people that are transformed by that which we believe rather than just whatever is in the newspapers or the YouTube clips this morning. It's interesting that as, as Peter talks about what we've been given in the resurrection, he talks about it as an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. You know, here's one true thing. I, I don't know whether anyone here's ever inherited money. It's all right, I'm not asking you to put your hand up. The treasurer will speak to you later. But if you ever inherited money, I could ask you this question What did you do to inherit the money? The answer is well, unless you bump the rich hand off, the answer is nothing. You just got it because the person chose you, because they loved you, or because you were born into their family. That's why you got that inheritance. Nothing that you can do. And that makes it completely secure. If you're getting a wage, if you don't turn up for work, or, or, or if the company goes bust, you're going to lose it. But if it's an inheritance, it's got nothing to do with you. It's just going to come. And that's the security that we are talking about here. Peter says in verse 5, you who through faith are shielded by God's power. Now, he doesn't mean God is shielding you and everything will be good. Right? That's not what it's just talking about. This is talking about the suffering and the trials and things that are difficult, and there are no solutions that take those away anywhere in this letter. But you are secure because you are shielded by God's power. That doesn't mean you're protected from suffering. That doesn't mean, and this is why people often lose faith, because they've got this idea, if I go to church and if I do all these things, if I live a good life, God will keep me safe from suffering. That is not the deal. And if you think that's the deal, then when the suffering comes, you'll think, God didn't keep his bargain, or I did something wrong, and me and God are not talking anymore, because either he's a bad God or I'm a bad person. But the deal is this promise that you are shielded, no matter what happens, you are secure because of what Jesus has done, and that changes everything. This is important, because this is the difference between seeing the gospel as good news or seeing the gospel as good advice. Good news says this is happening, this has been done by Jesus, and therefore you're secure. Good advice comes and says you really should be doing X, Y, and Z, and if you don't, then bad things will happen to you. Put it this way. Imagine you're living in a city, and the king goes out to meet an army of invaders that are coming. He's going to fight them in a big battle several miles away, and then he's going to send news of the result to you. Now, if the king wins the battle, then he will send messengers back with good news. And the good news will be that you don't need to live in fear anymore. The good news will be that you have peace. The good news will be that you can rejoice. 
And it won't be asking you to do anything other than be happy. Celebrate. But if the king loses the battle, then he will not send messengers of good news back. He will send advisors back. And the advisors will tell you that you better sharpen your weapons, that you better close the gates, that you better build up the walls, that you better prepare for a siege, because it's down to you now. The king's lost. And the question is, as we look at the gospel, which is it? Is it good news because the king comes and says, I have won the battle for you. Rejoice in my peace. Or is it a message that says, you're on your own. God looks after those who look after themselves. Do your bit. Roll up your sleeves. Get on with it. And maybe you'll be all right. But blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I am the heir of salvation that has been purchased by blood, the promise of God. You know, this is truly the victory that we have got. And therefore, because of that victory, we want to pray. Because of that victory, we want to worship. Because of that victory, we want to be bearers of good news. We don't do mission in order to please God and keep the church going. We do mission because the good news is that God has done that for us and He will build His church and therefore we have something to share. And I think as we hear the news that's coming back from the General Assembly, which is all about how we failed, all about how the numbers are going down, all about how we're struggling. And by the way, that's not just true of the Church of Scotland. It's true about of just about every denomination in Scotland today. There is more need than ever for us to remind ourselves that this was never about us and our strength. God did this not with 1.3 million members of the Church of Scotland or 300,000 members of the Church of Scotland or 50 members of the Church of Scotland. He did it with 12 people. That's the victory that we talk about. We are completely in God's hands. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fiery furnace, and they said to the king, we believe in a God who can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're going to stand firm. I believe in a God who can turn around the church of Scotland. I believe in a God who can make Scotland again a Christian nation, but even if he doesn't, the gospel is still glorious because Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was raised from the dead. It's interesting when, when you go on to, to, to read Peter, and I could preach through verse after verse after verse, but actually in Greek, uh, um, verses 3 through to verse 9 are one sentence. Uh, I could have given you it in Greek, there's no punctuation. And so, it just goes on, praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By His great mercy, He has given us birth into a new hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance that's kept in heaven for you who are by faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though you do for a little while. You suffer You suffer for many kinds of trials. There comes the great proven genuineness of your faith, of, of, of genuine worth more than gold that perishes, even though 
refined by, which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Through Him, you, though you have not seen Him, you love Him even though you do not see Him. Now you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, why do I read it like that? Because it's very tempting for the preacher to take it line by line, truth by truth. Here's a 27-point sermon. But actually, as Peter says this, it's almost just overflowing. It's not supposed to be taken apart like that. It's singing a song of praise. It's marked by words that say at the beginning, in this you greatly rejoice, filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You see, this isn't just a truth to believe. It's a song to make your heart sing, even in a prison cell. I was thinking about this the other day, about where people sing. And in our society today, people sing less and less, don't they? Apart from on football stadiums. We'll leave that as. But if you think about when people meet for common purpose, do they sing? Now, if you're, I don't know, a member of the Labour Party, you, you may be at your conference at the end of it, sing the, the, the red flag, or if it's the SNP, it's Scots Wahey, or I don't know, Land of Hope and Glory for the Tories. I, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure how it is, but you know, these groups maybe sing a song at the end of a one-day conference, two-day conference. When was the last time you went to a PTA meeting and someone said, let's sing? Or a business meeting and someone said, let's open by singing? When was the last time you were at a community council or, or whatever it is you're involved in? Uh, can you just imagine that the CEO standing there saying, we're going to open in song? They don't do it, do they? There's something unique about the church that we sing all the time. I, I, I was struck the other day of when I was given Eric a number for a, a hymn, it was like 1,300 and something in Mission Praise because it's got like 1,400 songs, and that's just the beginnings of it. People are writing songs in every generation to the fact we, we lose track of them. And why is that? Because there's something about us being reshaped by music, reshaped by words that in each generation remind us of the same gospel truths again and again and again until what do we do when suffering comes? We sing. I, as we went through difficult times recently, it was the words of hymns that so often came to my mind. That for you too? Sometimes the most crazy hymns. You know, I hope at the General Assembly this week as they look at all the things that are concerning, uh, that the focus will also be on the worship. There's something about those that have been at the assembly when you have all those folk in a room and they start singing a psalm, and it lifts the roof with that sense of praise that foretastes that praise of heaven. If we start in song, then we have something to offer, a gospel that transforms, and something that we can never lose, no matter what happens. Amen.